We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Dear friends in Christ, with the end of the Easter season, we leave off reading from Acts, and when we return to our Old Testament readings, well, not exactly. Uh, Acts is no longer the first reading, but it is the second reading for today and also for next Sunday. Today, Eric read for us the, the story, the narrative of the Pentecost event, the drama of the Spirit's descent. And next week, we will get the content, the argument of Peter's sermon. In the historical readings and here in series C, the confusion of languages heard at Pentecost is understood and made a connection to the confusion of languages at Babel, our Old Testament reading. Our text from Genesis 11 takes us back, way back before time. This is the last incident of the primeval history, if you will. We've heard the story innumerable times, but I think it comes alive really in the small details. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone. It's not a throwaway detail. That was not the common building practice in the ancient Near East, there in the land of Shinar, which is central and southern Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. In that region, there's insufficient stone for quarrying or trees for large-scale construction, as we hear about in the text. The normal building material would be mud brick, right? Baked in the sun. Think Israelite slaves in Egypt, almost half a millennia later. But not here. And there's a, a special word for these bricks in Hebrew, for bricks that have been fired. And the text draws that out with the verb and cognate, both for the brick and for the firing of the brick. As mentioned, there's insufficient trees in the area to fuel those fires. They would have to have been imported from the slopes of the Zargas Mountains, almost 100 miles to the north. And the second detail, in bitumen, for mortar. Again, that's not the usual practice. To bind mud bricks together, either nothing or simple mud was the normal practice, but not here. The engineers, bless their little hearts, specified bitumen, tar. Again, insufficient local resources. That would have had to come from the tar pits of southeastern Turkey, well over 100 miles to the northwest. The unusual bricks and mortar speak to the importance of the project. The effort and expense that people were willing to expend, the lengths to which they were willing to go, 100 miles in two different directions, hauling material. When we read and retell the story of Babel, we tend to focus on the tower, right? With its top reaching into the heavens. A tower reaching the heavens is a symbol of pride, right? A way to close the gap between God and man, a way to pull ourselves up to his level, to be on the same plane. It's a fool's errand. But man is caught up in the act and fails to see the folly of it, such as pride. But there's something more than just pride going on here. They're building not just a tower. They build a city and a tower and a name, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They want to be a people, a singular, identifiable people that all creation might know them. This is open rebellion to God's post-command, right? Genesis 9. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not fill Shinar or Cana or Egypt or any other locale. Be scattered. But the people built, lest they be scattered. It is, of course, evidence that the flood did not cure sin. Genesis 8, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that's of Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Verbatim, the reason for the flood. See, the promise of the rainbow coexists with the sinfulness of those who take hope in its promise. And in their sinfulness, they're attempting to bridge the gap to God, both physically and metaphorically. They feel that they must somehow make themselves acceptable prove their own worth, demonstrate their own strength, or at least fix the mess they created. We, you and I, are, of course, children of Babel. We highly prize our unity, our ability to work together. In an audacious display of teamwork, 58 Indian Army Service Corps soldiers set a world record recently collectively riding a single motorcycle for 1,200 meters. It happened on an Air Force station runway where driver Zabdar Rampal piloted a 500cc Royal Enfield, specifically engineered with a massive platform. The combination of balance and coordination and cohesion required does not necessarily come easily. Only twice they wiped out spectacularly before they finally made it on the third try. So why? What are they doing? Well, the team is nicknamed the Tornadoes, and they were formed in 1982. And their purpose is to tour, promoting national integration and adventurism, Indian pride. To make a name for themselves, to make a name for ourselves. We're all people of Babel. A good name, a good reputation cuts both ways. Positively, by being God-fearing and faithful and honest citizens. Negatively, when we fail to stoop and to help others and to give God the glory. Many of you, I'm sure, have read The Portals this Wednesday, and the author took us to Luke 7. Recall the Pharisee Simon. He invited Jesus to dinner, and a woman of the city, a sinner, comes, apparently uninvited, and anoint Jesus' feet. Simon inwardly rebukes Jesus. If he had known what sort of woman this was. But Jesus turns the table on Simon with a parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answers the question correctly, right? The larger debtor. But the real point of the parable is that we're all debtors. All debtors. And the story of Babel warns us against building towers attempting to close the gap to God with our own works. Whether as seemingly innocent as preparing our hearts to receive the Savior, or more overtly cooperating with God in salvation, or full-blown salvation by works, by doing penance as the currency of right standing, or by taking the act of communion and not trusting, receiving the promise of what is given. In the error of all such works, is captured beautifully in the irony of verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower 
which the children of man had built. That great and magnificent tower, the works of man were so small, a mere speck on the arid landscape of the desert of Shinar. So small, God had to come down to even get a glimpse of it. It's a matter of perspective. There's a Chinese proverb that reads, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. Seems obvious. Water is the sum and substance of the world in which the fish is immersed. The fish may not reflect on its environment until it's thrust on dry land and struggling to stay alive. Then it realizes water provides its sustenance. Is there any gospel? Is there any sustenance in this text, in the story of Babel? Well, yes, but not where we would expect it. Verse 7, God shatters the unity of their language. Verse 8, God scatters the people because, verse 6, this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they prosper to propose to do will now be impossible for them. <coughs> Jerome wrote, Indeed, when the tower was being built up against God, those who were building it were disbanded for their own welfare. The conspiracy was evil. The dispersion was of true benefit even to those who were dispersed. Close quote. But there's an even greater gospel in the restoration of Babel, the reversal of the confusion of tongues at Pentecost, not by the elimination of Greek or Aramaic, not by getting Cretans and Phrygians and Pamphylians to say the same words, but the Holy Spirit restores us to God by the singular language of the gospel. The man-made structure in Shinar was a failure. It was abandoned. They left off building the city, verse 9. But the need to bridge the gap to God remained. It multiplied as men and women reluctantly struck out to the four corners of the earth to fulfill the command of God. The God-provided structure of the cross, however, bridges the gap. Luther once wrote, The cross is the structure that holds heaven and earth together. This is why, actually, he later identifies Jacob's ladder as the cross. It is God's doing which reunites God and man. It's not by requiring us to come up to him. Rather, he sent his son. Jesus descends from heavenly realm, takes on our flesh, becomes a man. Jesus comes down not just to see sin, our sin. He experiences it. He took it upon himself. And with his words, it is finished. You are forgiven. The debt is canceled. The gap between God and man is closed. Instead of a tower of fired brick and bitumen, we have a Roman cross and three nails. And with his stripes, you are healed. Instead of a city on the plains of Shinar, the cross has become the foundation of eternal city. Granted, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, Hebrews chapter 13. A city whose foundation is laid by God on the cross. A city of whom glorious things are said in Psalm 87. Or Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Like Abraham, we look to the city that has foundations whose designer and engineer, builder is God, Hebrews 11. We look forward to joining with John in the realization, the revelation of our hope. As he records, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
We, you and I, are that bride, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb and adorned in splendor to meet him. Instead of a tower in or alongside the city, we have a cross. And in this sign, you will conquer. That's a phrase we normally associate with Constantine the first, who, according to Eusebius, while marching with his army, looked up to the sun and a cross of light appeared above it with these words. It became his standard, displayed along with the Cairo cross, his first initials of Jesus' name. His was a military banner and a military victory. Ours is a spiritual banner and an even greater victory. Triumph over sin and death, won for us, not by us. The victory of the Lamb who was slain and now ascended to the right hand of power. Yet his symbol remains with us, as George Bernard so famously wrote. That old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For twas that, that old cross, Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. Instead of a name based on your or my accomplishments, whether cities built or towers erected, a prideful name, instead of that, the name given to each of us in baptism, the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the name that declares, you are mine. The Holy Spirit restores us to God by the singular language of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us, the good news that we are empowered to speak, just as Peter and all the 120 spoke at Pentecost. So do you feel like Peter this morning? Standing before the crowd? No, me neither. We feel small and weak and unprepared. But take heart. Every word spoken, every touch to help those in need, every encouragement is one small piece of the unity in Christ that is ours in his kingdom come and coming. Confused? No longer. Let us speak the singular language of the gospel into every tongue. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.